Chapter 29 of Some Everyday Folk and Dawn by Miles Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brian Berkmeyer, Ann Arbor. Listen to more at SoundCloud slash MGO Birch. Chapter 29 The savage sells or exchanges his daughter, but in civilization the man gives his away and is thankful for the opportunity. Reflections of a Bachelor Girl Dawn took a great deal of her own way. Ernest and I were privileged to make suggestions so long as we were careful to remember our insignificance, and Grandma saw to it that her lawful rights were not altogether usurped. Occasionally it fell to my lot to act in a slightly mediatorial capacity, owing to the divergence of the swell wishes of the bridegroom-elect and the plebeian determination of his grandmother-in-law-to-be, regarding the wedding celebrations but Ernest was exceptionally unselfish and therefore very long-suffering. Dawn being under age, her grandmother came forward with a project that her father should be apprised of what was transpiring, requested to give his daughter away, and to bring some of his side of the house to the wedding. Dawn raised vigorous opposition. It would be like my father's presumption to interfere in any way, considering his career with my mother. I hate him for a mean coward. He's the very style of man I'd be ashamed to acknowledge as an acquaintance, yet alone own as a father. I'd like to see him dare to give me away. He'd have to own me first. Well, Jake there will have to give you away, then, said Grandma. I'd give him away with pleasure, replied Don, if I must be given away like a slave or animal. You'll give me away, Grandma, or I'll stay where I am. Who giveth this woman to be married to this man, the old parson will ask. Why won't he also ask, Who giveth this man? And if he too were only a chattel belonging to someone? That she would be disposed of by no one but her grandmother rather pleased the old lady than otherwise, so she invested in yet another black silk gown, over which she was to wear a seldom-seen cape of point lace worked by Dawn's mother. And she also purchased a wonderful bonnet, and armed herself with a new pair of lastings. Thus Dawn was to have her way in this particular but the old dame adhered to her original intention in the matter of the mudahips. I've kept em at bay long enough now. I'll just acknowledge em this once, or it will seem as if you was a illegitimate, said she in the plenitude of her worldly wisdom, and thereupon writ a stiff, though not discourteous, letter to Don's father, inviting any number of the bride's relatives up to six to come and spend a week before the wedding in her home for the purpose of making Don's acquaintance. There, I have done me duty and they can suit themselves whether they come or go to Halifax, she remarked as she dispatched the communication. They came. Don's father, his second wife, and his youngest sister, Miss Mudahip, arrived three days before the wedding and remained to grace the ceremony. Don, being a mere girl, perhaps it was Ernest's wealth and position induced them to meet Mrs. Martha Clay's overture, for they were thorough snobs, but if they had come prepared to patronize, their intention was killed ere it bore fruit. The hostess hired the town bus to convey them from the station and dispatched Andrew with many injunctions to conduct himself with reason to meet them there, while she and Dawn waited to receive them in one of the old porches. It was a bower of roses and potted plants, and further shaded by a graceful pepper tree, and made a beautiful frame for the grandmother and the maiden. The old dame so straight and vigorous, the girl as roseate and fresh as her name. 
but each equally haughty and bent upon maintaining their iron independence of the people who had discarded the girl and her mother ere the former had been born. Personal appearance was much in their favor, and no practiced belle of thirty could have held her own better than the inexperienced girl of nineteen, whose native writ and downright honesty of purpose were more than equal to all the diplomacy of thrust and parry to be gained by living in society. Her stepmother, who was apparently as good-natured as she seemed brainless, was prepared to be gushing, but that was nipped in the bud by the way Dawn extended her pretty firm hand with the dimpling wrist and knuckles and exquisitely tapering fingers. Her father and aunt, who were tall and angular with thin faces of dull expression, met a similar reception, and she presented them to me herself, explaining that I was a very dear friend with her for the wedding. I had long since risen from a boarder to be a guest and friend of the house, and it had devolved upon me to exhibit the presence and interview the endless callers at this time of nine days' wonder. It being hot, the ladies retired to doff their hats ere partaking of afternoon tea and Dawn took her father's hat while he trumpeted in his handkerchief and attempted a few commonplace platitudes from the biggest and stiffest armchair in the parlor into which he had subsided. I left the room, but could hear him from where I stood awaiting the lady's reappearance, one from the room that had been Miss Flip's and the other from the one I had at first occupied. And Mr. George Mudiheep was to occupy the third one of these apartments, which had been empty since the tragedy. Don, my dear, you are your mother once again, he said with a sigh. I have never seen you, and now you are sufficiently grown to be married. Yes, said the girl. Will you give me a kiss? I'd rather not. You see, you are only a stranger to me. I have never heard of you only as the man who was a monster to my mother. I never saw her, but I remember to love her for what she did for me. Whereas you, what do you do for her and me? I would like you to understand how I feel on this subject, so that there can be no mistake, said the girl honestly. Oh, well, I didn't come here to be told that, but to give consent to your marriage. Oh, said the girl, rearing the pretty head with its wealth of bright hair. As for that, I'm going to marry. If you like to exercise your authority, I'll run away, and you can't unmarry me. It is at Grandma's wish you are here. She said to let old bitterness sleep for the time you are here, and so I will, now that I have explained that I utterly refuse to recognize that a father is anything but a stranger unless he discharges the responsibilities of the office. For the sake of the race, I maintain this ground, she concluded in words that had been put into her mouth by one of the speakers at Ada Grosvenor's election league, and the appearance of the ladies put an end to further contention. Dawn's judgments were remorseless as becoming clean-souled, fearless youth has yet unacquainted with the great gulf twixt the ideal and real, and untainted by that charity and complacence which, like senility, come with advancing years. The aunt was elderly and unprepossessing, and the stepmother of the type bespeaking champagne and too much eating for the exercise taken, for her head was partly sunk in a huge mass of adipose substance that had once been bosom and the other proportions of her figure were in keeping. The cups were spread in the dining room. So thither we repaired to eat and drink, while representations of Jim Clay and Jake Sorrell Sr., who had wept for the sufferings of the convicts, glowered down upon the gathering of plebeians who were half-swells and the swells who were wholly plebeian. Presently, Grandma and I excused ourselves and left Dawn with her relations. What do you think of them? 
Are they any better than Dawn and me? said the old dame as we got out of hearing. How do I compare with that old sack of charcoal? Ay, how did she compare? As a slight, active, handsome woman, still vigorous at seventy-six, with one who, though thirty years her junior, was already almost helpless from obesity and natural clumsiness, that's how she compared. Them's some of the swells for you, one of the old families who think they're made of different stuff to you and me. What do you think of Dawn, Jim Clay's granddaughter, who drove the coach, when placed beside her aunt, the granddaughter of an admiral in the army? She looks as though Jim Clay had been a general in the Navy and she had done justice to her heredity, I gravely replied. Andrew, come here and tell me how you managed them and what you think of the great bugs now you've seen them, commanded the old lady of that individual as he emerged from the kitchen with both hands full of cake. Did you walk up to him and say, Are you Mr. and Mrs. Mudaheep? I'm Mrs. Clay's grandson, like I told you. No, I seen it in their luggage without asking em. And one look at em was enough for me. I didn't bother telling em who I was. I didn't care if they fell down and broke their necks, the bloomin' long-nosed old goats. I just took hold of their things and flung em up in the bus, and the old fat one, she says, Are you Mrs. Clay's groom? And I says, Mrs. Clay is my grandma. And she says, Oh! Well, you might have introduced yourself a bit better to make things more agreeabler, but they really are the untakenest people I've seen for a long time. Ain't I delighted that Dawn took after my side? And now, though she's my own, do you think I'm over-conceited to think her fit for the king's son? Certainly not, I replied, for it would have taken a very estimable son of a king to be meet for this princess of the break of day, appropriately christened Dawn. End of chapter 29. Recording by Brian Berkmeyer, Ann Arbor. Find more at soundcloud slash mgobirch.com.